So let's say I'm sending a spacecraft out into the spectacular void of our solar system. Okay, so we're gonna need this much pointing accuracy, we'll need to send data using these protocols, design our mass, volume, and mechanical interfaces based on this launch vehicle, and everything needs to operate based on X watts of power in the worst case scenario. But how do we operate it? What information will help me understand the instantaneous state of the entire spacecraft? What do we have to consider as we design the system so we can mitigate any risk that we might run into, or at least resolve them if they occur? And once you have everything defined, how do we then train people to operate this spacecraft when they aren't familiar with it or the ground support system? How can we help them fundamentally understand everything so that they can detect problems when they occur and help resolve them? And finally, how do we organize all of this for something that has several complex components to it? Payloads, RF, propulsion, various orbital maneuvers, operational and environmental constraints, the whole shebang. Preparing everything that's necessary to help the mission operations phase be as smooth and successful as possible can be a challenging task that requires a heck of a lot of attention to detail. So if you're interested in how we as engineers can approach these questions, then I think you'll enjoy what this episode has in store. Hello, fellow space enthusiasts, and welcome to another episode of The Art of Space Engineering. I'm your host, Sarah Rogers, and today's episode is all about mission operations and how we prepare for this so everything goes smoothly once we can't touch the spacecraft anymore, or at least go as smoothly as it possibly can. Now, we can't possibly predict every single bad thing that could happen in space, but we can prepare for these as best as possible by getting as best of an understanding about the system as possible, and testing the absolute crap out of everything as much as we can. Hope is not a valid engineering solution, my young grasshoppers. So to talk about a bit of what goes into mission operations, I sat down with Ernest Cisneros, who has an incredible background in systems engineering and system and network administration. He supported operations for several instruments at ASU, a few of which include the cameras on board the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, also known as LROC, MassCam on the Curiosity rover, and MassCam-Z, which is currently serving as the eyes of the Perseverance rover on Mars and helping us identify terrain to study, and the hyperspectral cameras on the Psyche spacecraft, which is slated to launch in 2022 to journey to a metal asteroid named Psyche, where scientists hope to learn more about the origin of planetary cores. And when we were working on the Phoenix CubeSat at ASU, Ernest was always our go-to for anything related to mission operations. And over the years, we certainly learned a lot from him on what goes into operational planning, as well as what resources we could develop to help Phoenix be successful. So given that, I'm really excited that this episode can share some of that advice with you all as well. There's a lot of really great advice and personal experience to draw on in this episode, whether you're part of a student CubeSat team and you're working on a mission of your own, or if you're really interested in just pursuing a career in the space industry, or if you just really like space and you want to learn more about what goes into mission operations. One side note I do want to mention about this episode is that it was recorded way back in October of last year before the semester got really crazy and it got difficult to keep up with this fun side project of mine. So it really doesn't matter too much for the whole scope of this conversation, but we do talk briefly about MassCam-Z while the Perseverance rover was still on its way to Mars. So in case the conversation seems a little outdated, that's why. But as of February 18th, as I think you all know, the rover successfully landed on Mars and is already contributing amazing things to the scientific community. So hats off to all of the brilliant scientists and engineers who helped take the Perseverance rover and all of the instruments on it from concept to reality, and congratulations to all of you for this amazing achievement. 
Okay, I'm going to restrain my childlike excitement before I geek out a little too much. <laughs> but with that, let's just get right down to business and allow me to present to you the wisdom of Ernest Cisneros. Hey, how's it going? You're good. I can hear you. Okay, I guess I can't really hear you if my speaker is also my microphone. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Um, yeah. Technology. <laughs> okay, looks like settings are pretty good now. <laughs> How is everything with you in, in this uh, COVID time? Uh, peachy keen. Uh, you know, getting to work from home is actually increased my productivity. I spend less time commuting to and from work and commuting to and from meetings. So it's kind of, kind of nice. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is kind of nice. I get to, um, I feel like I've kind of like beat the system because like in some cases I'll have a telecon and I'll just be on that on my phone and then I'll just be kind of like watching, um, like watching my lab or watching a lecture and um, I'm like, hey, this mm -hmm. multitasking is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it can, it can be a lot of fun. All right, um, well, if you're ready, I think we'll just go ahead and get started with some of these questions and then go from there. Okay, Sweet. sure. All right, so to, to get these started, I usually just kind of like to um, start out with getting to know you a little bit better and your background, and then we can segue into more of the, the technical conversation. Okay. So uh, with that, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do at ASU and um, how, you, how you got here. <laughs> um, okay. And any other interesting uh, tidbits you want to throw out. So. Oh, there's lots of interesting tidbits, so we could be here for a while. <laughs> but um, so my background is in geology. I have a bachelor's of science in geology. Um, and at the time, computers were still fairly um, mainframe-ish. Uh, minis, personal computers still were the things like Commodore 64, but, but I had an affinity for computers because uh, my dad like buying computer games and things like that. And so we had a lot of technology around the house. So I kind of got into them at a young age. So when I went to college, I really uh, studying geology and they said, oh, you can also get a minor in computer science. So I minored in computer science and people were like, what are you gonna do with that? <laughs> I'm not sure, but we'll figure something out. Um, and so for, from that, I went to uh, Northern Arizona University here in, uh, in Arizona for a master's in geology. And um, about three, three and a half, four years into that, I got a student job at the USGS uh, working for a gentleman, Hugh Kiefer. Um, and he liked, he hired me because of course, I know geology, I know programming computers. And so he hired me to do a bunch of programming for him. And that sort of got me started on my career of uh, supporting science and specifically planetary science. Um, so I worked at the USGS for five years, uh, went to North Carolina, worked at Duke uh, Physics Department for about three years, came back to Flagstaff for another five years uh, working at the USGS. Uh, and then a good friend of mine, Dr. Mark Robinson, got, the, uh, got his instrument 
uh, submission got selected for the LRO spacecraft and he called me up and said, I want you to come to Chicago and uh, run the science, uh, the science operations center for me for the camera systems. Uh, after some long deliberation said, okay, I'm, I'm on board. And nice. so jo joined him uh, at Northwestern. Uh, but we were only there for about a year before we um, packed everything up and came to, back to Arizona, of all places, and Phoenix and here at ASU. And that was in the summer of 2006, and I've been here ever since. Um, so currently, uh, so I arrived at ASU working on the LRO mission. Uh, and that took up most of my time up until about uh, 2016 when I joined Dr. Jim Bell's research group to support his work on the uh, uh, mass cam instrument on uh, the MSL rover. And he had a couple of projects in development, um, the mass cam Z instrument, which is now on the Mars 2020 rover, which is on its way to Mars right now. And, uh, and shortly after I came over to his group, the Psyche mission was selected. And so that fell also fell onto our plate for starting to do development. Uh, and then in the interim since that was selected, uh, Dr. Bell also got uh, selected to do some uh, work on the T2CAM camera system on the Lucy mission. So right now we, you know, we're supporting MassCam on MSL, MassCam Z on Mars 2020, uh, the Psyche multispectral imagers on Psyche, and I'm also responsible for something called the Science Data Center uh, as part of the Psyche mission, and the T2CAM instrument on Lucy. So we have a fairly full plate of projects that we're working on, both in development, in flight. Um, yeah, so. And nowadays when people go, what do you do? I, I tend to tell them I'm a systems engineer uh, because after um, all, all of, so all, all during that time at the USGS and the various other places, um, what, what I found that I am doing is this, this um, body of knowledge called systems engineering, which is understanding a bunch of different systems, how they go together and how they, maximize the, the capabilities and output of those systems. And so uh, I didn't know it, but that's what I do. But yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a really neat background. And I actually, I wanted to ask you kind of what, like, what does an average day look like for you at this point with, you know, missions in orbit, and then also, you know, working on planning things on the ground uh, as well? Well, that's a really good question. And the, the short answer is there's never an average day. So um, certainly on an in-flight mission, you know, there are developments like uh, just this past week, the arm on MSL faulted out. And so we had to spend uh, some time uh, during planning to debug that uh, so all of the observations that we had planned sort of get set on the shelf till they figure out what was wrong with arm get it back to wor a working condition and then proceed from there and bring all of those plans back off the shelf and and pick up what we left off and certainly in development you know you come in thinking hey today i'm going to work on my 
uh, mission system CDR slide package and instead uh, right now I'm sitting in mission ops here at uh, ASU uh, supporting uh, an ORT for uh, the Mars 2020 project. Uh, so I'm still kind of working on my slides, but I'm also having an ear open uh, to assist if my assistance is needed. So, so the truth is there aren't average days. You know, a good day is I get to work on the things that I plan to work <laughs> on. And a bad day is there's one thing after another that needs immediate attention that, you know, so I don't get to any of the things I plan to work on. But it's still, you know, it's all still very, mess, uh, very necessary work that needs to get done. Yeah, I think that is, I feel like that's almost the, the motto of anyone <laughs> working in the, in the space industry. <laughs> um, right, yeah, that's true. I came in to do this job and now I got to put out all, all of these fires or, <laughs> or what have you. So. Well, yeah, you, 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 I think, lived a lot of that, you know, on the Phoenix Project. You, you come in thinking you're going to do one thing and suddenly you're trying to help one of the subsystems figure out a problem or get things that things work in uh, so that you can move on to the, the next step. Yeah, a, a um, little bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, most definitely. Um, so to, I guess to, to kind of to segue now that we're kind of naturally segueing in, into more of the, um, I guess the, the meat of the conversation. Um, so for, for people who aren't really aware of what all goes into mission operations, what specifically does um, the mission operations phase entail, um, both in preparing for the operations phase and then when you're actually in it? Right. Well, so during, during development, the, usually the entity within uh, a project, it's called the mission system, and they're the ones that are tasked with flying the spacecraft and interfacing with the instrument and instrument teams to uh, get them to the proper location orientation uh, so that they can acquire the, the, the data that they're looking for. Uh, and so during development, the mission system team is looking at uh, working with various groups to talk about, you know, launch, uh, depending on where you're going, you know, if you're going to the moon, it's a short three-day trip. If you're doing a direct uh, trajectory, uh, the Luna map, uh, CubeSat's doing something called phasing orbit. So basically, it starts out in Earth orbit, increases uh, the eccentricity and the the size of that orbit until it finally naturally touches the gravity field of the moon and then starts doing figure eights with the moon and then eventually, you know, starts off in this big loop and then phases down to uh, the orbit where it wants to. And that happens over a period of like three to six months. Uh, Psyche, you know, we have a, about a four year cruise on March 2020, we have a three year cruise. So you're working with the, the, uh, the, the folks who figure out those trajectories, uh, trying to make them as efficient as a possible, uh, looking for you know cost savings to your fuel because of course the most important commodity in in uh, planetary exploration is your fuel. How much to get out of Earth's orbit, and then how much fuel you have left to get to where you're going, 
And then if you're going into orbit, how much fuel do you have when you arrive so that you can do those orbital operations? Um, and then the next most important resource is, of course, power to do all the things that you need to do. Um, so during that development, you're working through that. And then you're also working through, okay, how are we going to communicate with the ground? How are we going to interface within the mission system with all of the entities, the instrument teams, uh, JPL's deep space network? Um, in the case of Psyche, uh, there's a uh, Psyche, the spacecraft is being built by a company named Maxar. How do we interface with them if we have an anomaly with the spacecraft bus? Because they're the experts. So you're figuring out all of those communication pathways ahead of time. And if we're sending information back and forth, what's that format? How often do we send that once a day, once an hour? Um, who are the points of contact? And you, you work out um, logistically all of those interconnections. And then while you're doing that, the the uh, spacecraft people are, are doing the same thing on the spacecraft. What are all the components on the spacecraft? How do they talk to one another? Um, how often are we polling for fault situations? What happens when that fault situation occurs? And then when that fault situation occurs, do we simply turn that component off? Do we um, raise a watchdog and escalate and put the spacecraft or uh, into a safe mode and then call home for help? So they're working through that and then eventually those two interfaces come together um, in preparation for launch and, and the, the actual or, uh, operational phase. And if everybody has done their jobs correctly, everybody understands how those systems work. And so when we start launch the spacecraft and start uh, interacting with it, the people who are flying the spacecraft uh, understand if we you know send these commands the spacecraft is supposed to uh, behave in a certain in a certain manner um, and the, they work to get us to our eventual destination and then the instrument teams come in and start um, doing their thing to command their instruments to take pictures gather uh, you know uh, gravity data or gamma ray neutron spectrometer data or whatever the instrument uh, is designed to do so, so it's this intricate dance of getting all of these components to talk to one another and understanding those pathways and the modes of communication. So when you're doing it, you understand if I say this, I should expect that response back. And then when you don't get that response, then you immediately start trying to figure out, okay, why didn't I get that response? Um, and, and then try to hopefully remedy uh, the situation if, if you're not getting the desired response. So like I like to tell people when they kind of their eyes glaze over when I <laughs> talk about it like that, I go, it's like this. It is a three-dimensional puzzle <laughs> and all the pieces are gray. And so you're trying to figure, you know, you're going, well, it goes somewhere in here and figure it out. Not quite that hard, but uh, it, it is a very intricate, if you like, puzzles and uh, things like that. Systems engineering is great because you really are working on um, so many systems and you get exposed uh, to so much new stuff. Like when I started, uh, I knew a little bit about the spacecraft side 
and now I know way more than I ever thought I would ever know about spacecraft subsystems and communication and orbital dynamics and all of this stuff. None of the stuff that I studied in school, but I picked up along the way. Yeah, absolutely. That's um, a lot of a lot of people ask me like what I want to do, and I always tell them systems engineering be exactly because of that. Um, because I, I mm -hmm. it was so cool to to able to really dive into all of these different areas of the system and, and learn about them. Um, and then, you know, when they say, well, what, what do you want to do with systems engineering? And I kind of say, well, everything. And <laughs> that's not, um, apparently that isn't helpful for, <laughs> um, for, for some people to, to kind of like, I don't know, I guess, figure, figure, uh, figure out where to put you. <laughs> um, right. Right. But yeah. Um, so one thing I'm, Kind of going off of that, one thing I'm curious about, and I'm not sure if I'm going to, I may not ask this very well, but um, I, I guess what is that, what, what is the, the, like the, the interaction between like you and, and other subsystems look like in, in that case, since, you know, you, you have this very big puzzle and you have all of these um, uh, specific things related to the operations phase that you, ha you have to figure out so that way, you, you know, logistically you can say, um, uh, you know, we know exactly what the spacecraft will do every second from from start to end. Um, I right. guess maybe where I'm trying to go with this is like how much of your of your time is like taken up with like having to really work with other people and um, talk with them answer questions versus like you saying right. i have all this information um and then these are the tools i'm going to use to uh to, to fill in those gaps essentially right so yeah that's a good question so normally and i say normally because again you know every mission is different but normally you want to in the development phase you're going to have periodic and periodic maybe every week maybe once a month, you know, maybe once a quarter, depending on your development uh, timeline, uh, interactions with the, um, the connections that you're gonna have. So using Psyche as an example, as the manager of the Science Data Center, my job is to accept from the mission ground data system, the GDS, all spacecraft telemetry uh, that the instrument teams need to process their science observations, accept all of the instrument science observations, also um, accept all NAFE kernels to be used by the, the instrument teams, plus other miscellaneous ancillary information that the instrument teams might need to do uh, the, the data processing on their observations. So that's one interface, and that interface has all of these components. Um, and then uh, at some level, I have to understand enough about those components to when they get delivered to me to ascertain whether it's a valid component or it's a corrupt component mm -hmm. um, so that I can then go back to the, the entity who's delivering that to me and say, that last thing you just sent me, I think is corrupt because it didn't pass a checksum or you know the, the label seems incomplete or whatever metric we're using to determine that. Um, you know, the, to signal that there's uh, been some sort of um, anomaly in the transfer going back to the entity and say, can you resend it? 
and then and then having those interfaces with okay the instrument teams and they they have access to a particular set of information they're going to want to pull all that and so i need to make sure to them they understand what are you getting how many files what's the format here's how you can know whether or not when you get it it's good or you know corrupt um, and also making sure that that information isn't being disseminated to more than the instrument team that needs it. Uh, not because it's proprietary, but we, you know, we're trying to keep things compartmentalized. Mm -hmm. So the imager data is only that initial raw data only is useful to the imager team for doing their initial data processing. Once they, all the instrument teams get that, that low level raw data, do their data processing, they create their first product, their first PDS product um, that they then give back to me. And again, here's it, this interface. Now I'm getting another thing I need to know what they are. While they have similar names in terms of this is a PDS uh, L0 product, they have different contents, different structure. And so I have to be familiar with those. And again, understand is this corrupt, valid, whatever. And then those products, now are available to the general science team, the general psyche science team to do science analysis or create higher level products from those, uh, those first order products. Uh, or the instrument team also can take those and those um, uh, first order products and do calibrated uh, process, calibrate those observations and then create another product that also is useful and so now all the team has access to those uh, observations and so at each of those interfaces i'm you know identifying that connection what's going to be coming over that connection how can i uh, make sure and what's the frequency of that connection am i going to get it you know um, trickled over the day or do i expect it all within an hour after downlink and that, you know, that downlink always happens at 10 o'clock. So by 11 o'clock, we should have all the data uh, uh, in the science data center. So identifying all that and then making sure all of my, the people I'm communicating with understand those schedules and what they can expect and answering the questions that they have um, and working with them to answer my questions like, okay, what's your product going to look like? You know, is it a binary file? Is it ASCII text? Uh, what is it? And then how best, once I have it, when you want to find it, what are the pieces of information you're going to be looking for? A date timestamp, uh, a detector uh, number, or um, some other piece of information, and making sure to extract that from the product, put it into a database so when they go looking for it, instead of trying to you know, manually look for it, they'll have an interface that says, oh, I'm looking for this type of instrument data and I want to search on the detector number and look for detector three, click the search button and all that data comes up in an interface that lets them then select, oh, I want those, you know, or I want that data for a particular time range. And so building that tool that allows the, the team, whether it's an instrument team or the science team, to search for and find that data as easily as possible. Gotcha. Now that's, all of that is, is really, really like incredibly useful. Like it's um, when we were figuring out Phoenix for the first time, um, you know, I think a lot of people, when they think about 
space missions, I mean, you, you mostly think about the hardware and the very like high level um, things that you, that you need to know, but um, things that, that we didn't think about initially was um, were, were a lot of those very specific logistical details of, um, okay, what, what, what format is this supposed to be? What, what, um, you know, when can we expect this? How much time does, does this take? It, you know, we really didn't get, that really didn't become super refined until we were actually in like the, the testing phase. And, um, right. it's, it's something that's, yeah, it was, was not very, uh, evident to us when, when we first started out. So, um, all of all of that it's great that you mentioned all of that um i think that's that's yeah. helpful for a lot of people yeah i and i mean missions are all about communication communication between the subsystems the ground the you know instrument teams right. and the more precise and clear you know and in fact you're constructing a language that allows you to do the job that you've been hired to do, whether it's a science data center manager, the instrument ops lead, or the data archivist, or the, the, um, the orbital determination person who's, you know, um, once we get into orbit, who's recalculating based on inputs from the gravity team as we refine the gravity field around uh, Psyche and redoing the orbit determinations to make sure that we're not flying into the asteroid or flying away from the asteroid. <laughs> you know, all it's it's all this um, refining our communication to make sure we don't miss something and don't miscommunicate and then get ourselves into trouble. Um, and trouble can be, you know, a minor thing or a bad thing, you know, inches instead of uh, millimeters and then you know you're flying into the surface of mars right <laughs> or something like that yeah you know it's like uh, bad things like that right actually so speaking of troubles that's a perfect segue into my next question actually um so i know the the ops phase it can get very tricky when things go wrong um and mm -hmm. and they can go very wrong sometimes so um yeah. I know there's a there's a lot of pre-planning that that goes into um, just trying to figure out how to how to mitigate that. It, you know, if something does happen, how do we mitigate that uh, in 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 the when it's actually occurring, um, such that we can get things back to normal. Um, so right. one thing I, I wanted to ask is what what kind of preparation do you usually have to go through um, in order to prepare your prepare yourself and prepare the rest of the team for potential anomalies that could occur whether it be like paperwork side or um yeah you know, maybe more on the software side you know it, it might be a good idea for the software folks to implement this feature and what have you yeah so the the that's a good question and it it really you know, designing an instrument, you know, you can, uh, how do I phrase it? You can try to design an instrument that anticipates all possible scenarios and behaves in, an, in a manner that keeps the instrument operational. However, that's a lot of code and a lot of logic. Yeah. <laughs> or you can des design a, an instrument that is very simple um, but yet is robust and, and despite anomalies happen, 
happening to the instrument or around the instrument like heat or cold or um, you can still continue to collect potentially degraded information from it but you're still collecting data so so you know there's design decisions that are made uh, in the, the fabrication of the instrument in the flight software that goes into it and the same thing on the spacecraft side and the same thing in the ground system. You're always looking at what you need to do. How do I do it? And my philosophy is how do I do it in the simplest way possible so I'm robust um, and make sure I create it in a component fashion that allows me to at least up until you know you, hardware when you launch it you can't touch anymore but on the ground system you can replace things um, but that you can really understand the fault tree of when things go wrong to go oh that's that that fault is being generated at this interface or at this component now we understand it and here's how we work uh, around it the more complex a system the harder you know the larger that fault tree is and the the harder it is to really focus down on like where is the problem coming coming from and like on the lro mission early on in our commissioning phase we had turned on the cameras and we started taking observations with uh, our wide angle camera and it just we were not understanding the data that we were getting and we were looking at um, the telemetry and trying to figure out um, it just didn't ma match our expectations mm -hmm. so we were imaging the moon it looked normal but temporally meaning the time sequence um, that were associated with it didn't seem to be lining up with where we thought we were commanding it and so we started looking at on the commanding side okay our are we actually sending what we thought we were sending? We said, take an image at one o'clock. Is that what's really going into the command load and eventually getting to uh, this, the, the people at Goddard to uplink to the spacecraft? Okay, we went through that whole analysis. Yes, it's definitely not commanding. Um, eventually, it turned out that there was a bug in the way that the flight software was handling the, the, the syncing of the instrument clock to the spacecraft clock. And when the instrument started getting really busy, it started skipping its uh, time sync, and that was causing the clock to drift so, uh, a little bit at a time. But you know, if we were really busy for a long period of time, and with the WAC, we could essentially take uh, long strips of observations uh, when we're observing. Um, and that was causing this clock drift to really uh, get significant. And so by the time we finished one long strip and went on to the next, um, at the end of that long strip, the timestamps were all wonky on, on, the, on the observation. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, so we had to go around with the instrument uh, a team and you know figure all this out and try to figure out what the problem was and eventually they patched the flight software and, and got everything working like it was supposed to. This was not something we had planned for ahead of time. Um, obviously on the ground 
you're trying to envision all the things you can think of. Bad clock drift on your instrument was not something we envisioned was going to be a problem. Um, But yet it it occurred. And then we, you know, had to work through finding the source of the problem and then how to remedy the the situation. Uh, I can, uh, another instance is on the near mission, uh, the camera system, they were doing a maneuver and they had some um, fuel deposit on the lens, on the exterior lens, and it was like somebody had taken, you know, licked their thumb and put a, a their thing, their thumb right on the lens, and there was this smudge. Oh, no. And we noticed it because some of the some of the uh, initial images that were acquired, you know, the, the images were very sharp. The stars had very uh, uh, a nice, you know, drop off in the signal, and then after this event you know, they were fuzzy and they had a very sloping edge to them. And so that, you know, it took a little while for the team to figure out what had happened and you can't do anything about it. I mean, it's not like in this particular case, we couldn't fly up and, you know, clean the lens or anything, but luckily because we had taken uh, enough data beforehand, we could work out what the image should look like when we were looking at a star field and actually uh, work out a, a mathematical algorithm to correct for that smudging. So we were able to actually fix the smudging uh, in software and then take observations and get back uh, uh, an observation that almost matched exactly what we would have gotten without the smudge. Oh, that's great. So, yeah. That's so, great. you know, again, you know, didn't expect it. It happened. How do you work around it? Luckily, we we had a you know we were able to work out a solution for for working around that particular problem. But that those are you know some extreme cases of things you don't expect that happen. You know, um, whenever you're building a system like when I'm building um, like the mission operations system here at ASU, I want to think of you know the, the classic things. What if I lose power? What if I lose HVAC, my cooling? What if I lose network? What if I lose, um, you know, all of these things and then figure out um, what the issue is, uh, that loss of that service and how do you, you know, how does it affect your system and how do you mitigate? Can you mitigate it? You know, if you lose power, you lose power. Okay, well, we can mitigate it by making sure we have uh, un- uninterruptible uh, power supplies. So we in the building, you know, we have a whole generator and that kicks in. Mm-hmm. That's great. At the USGS when I was working there, we had similar things. We had battery backups on all of the key servers. Turned out the network guys didn't put UPSs on the network switches. So as soon as we lost power, we lost the networks. Mm-hmm. So, which was problematic because we had all this fancy software that, you know, systems, smart systems uh, were connected to UPSs and said, oh, I'm on a UPS. Ooh, we've been on a UPS for a minute. This seems like it's going to be a long outage. Let me send a signal to all these servers to shut down. The servers didn't get that signal because the network was out. So again, you know, unintended consequences of one of the components not being resilient to a power outage so so again you know i can plan for everything and then if i'm um trusting another component and and i don't know what how they're put together that component may cause my system to fail 
um, in a in a novel way that I wasn't expecting. So so these are you know you, you try to plan for all the things uh, you know, and it's not you're not looking for you're not looking for this at least from the way I approach it. I'm never looking for a specific sequence of events. What I'm looking is for the end result. Mm -hmm. I lost power. I don't care how I lost power. To me, the important thing is I don't have power or I don't have network or I don't have cooling. And then how do I fix that so that I don't damage my system and can get back to a nominal state? So whether that power was because a rat chewed through a power cable <laughs> or somebody trenched, you know, through the APS feed to the ASU campus or all of those things are things that have happened at ASU. Wait, we had a rat chew um, through a power cable? Yeah, at Goldwater, <laughs> uh, it actually didn't chew. It somehow got into one of the breaker panels and fried itself and took out uh, a big uh, electrical panel that caused an outage at Goldwater. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So these are the things that happen that you're like, okay, <laughs> how do we deal with rats in the power system? That's crazy. I've never, like, I've never even seen a rat in Arizona and I've lived here my whole life. So that's... Uh, yeah, I think they're in the, in the steam tunnels, so... Mm. Okay. Yeah, they're pretty well, pretty well hidden. Or maybe it was a mouse. I don't know. I, I thought it was a rat. Somebody said it was a mouse. Maybe it was a mouse. But yeah, rodents in the electrical systems. All right. Yeah. I will uh, <laughs> keep that in mind. I'm sure that's like, yeah. that's one of those things where, um, you know, if you're, if you're reading through a list of things that are outlawed and you just get to something outrageous and you're like, why th this is only on here because it's like, it's definitely happened before and it was so <laughs> ridiculous yeah. and no one thought it was going to happen. Um, right. All laws are like that. You know, somebody did it and, you know, tweak somebody. And so let's do a law. No rats in the electrical system. Mm -hmm. Wait, we have to have a law for that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, kind of going off of that, um, a lot of the, well, I mean, not to say that we had a lot of anomalies on orbit, but um, when we actually did have an anomaly on orbit for Phoenix, it was, you know, things that we we didn't plan for, um, mm -hmm. and and we really tried to to make things as robust as as possible, like like what you were saying, and and really a lot of our, I think our uh, robustness planning, um, that mm -hmm. sounds like a weird combination of words, <laughs> um, was, was more so in, in software and like, uh, checking, checking, making sure our schedules were very thoroughly checked. So we didn't, you know, like, a uh, we were, we were more concerned about seg faults, uh, repeatedly right. resetting the OBC and the OBC just getting like stuck on this whole reset loop. Um, in which right. case we'd never be able to send ground commands to the Axe 100 because um, our software wouldn't, you know, it would just be constantly rebooting. Um, so, yeah, it was it was really, once we really got comfortable with Phoenix, it wasn't, there were a lot of things that weren't super complex about it, I would say, but it we we did work on making it as the, the you know, the, the, small number of things that we did have, we did work on making that as robust as, as possible. So that's, um, it's a, it's a good thing to mention. Yeah. Yeah. Usually hardware is easy because, you know, it's like you measure it and you have tolerances and you're within the tolerances. Software is a lot harder because unless you have enough people looking at it, you know, I could, uh, there's, I've come across code where the programmer 
through no fault of their own, decided some variable or some loop structure or something, and nobody told him to do it otherwise, decided it needed to cap at 100 iterations or 1,000, or the, the value should only be three digits or you know some limitation not thinking through the whole, oh, how long is this mission, you know, or how, how many times might I be iterating in this? And that it's not really a logic flaw, it's just the system wasn't really designed for the mission as planned. And so that, that small, you know, again, there's no logic problem, but it's a problem because you hit up against it Oh, usually, you know, we'll we'll iterate 500 times, but occasionally we'll iterate 1,200. And when you do those 1,200 iterations, you hit that cap, and then things break, and they break in an unforeseen way because nobody thought you'd ever hit that number. Right. Yeah. So software usually can lead to a lot of situations where you're like, ugh. Why is it doing that? <laughs> oh, look, oh, oh, somebody put a, the number 12 here. Oh my God, okay. <sighs> yeah, yeah, we, we, we went through all of that too. It was, uh, you know, we tried to make sure, oh, if someone accidentally, you know, pressed an extra number in, um, you know, they put an extra number in a parameter or if this parameter was a letter instead of a number, like make sure that doesn't, that doesn't totally break the system because that would make us very mm -hmm. sad. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so yeah, you're as a systems engineer, you're constantly, you know, you're trying to make sure the system you're building has as few of those surprises baked into it as possible. Um, and so it, it's a constant day-to-day, hour-to-hour um, job of, you know, um, and that's kind of why in in our here at ASU. I like having uh, office spaces that are open where I can hear people yeah. and people can hear me. So when we're talking about a problem, everyone hears the answer is 12, not one, not two, but 12 or 42 or whatever the number is, or, um, or you hear it and you run out there going, no, it's <laughs> not 12. So, so that you don't have these surprises mm -hmm. uh, baked into your system. Yeah, absolutely. That was, um, that was another useful thing that we found with Phoenix too, was just, you know, having as many people as possible work in the same room. Cause it's just like every, everyone hears about something and everyone's there to kind of understand how all, all of these different components are coming together. So that's, yeah, small, small yeah. office spaces are, are nice in, in that regard. Yeah. And you never know who has the piece of information that makes it all really work well. You know, it's not the person who you really thought the programmer or some, but somebody else who just happens to have that stuck in their head mm -hmm. and you're sitting there, you know, going, what is, oh, oh, that, the answer you're looking for is this. Oh, thanks. So yeah, it makes uh, development so much nicer that you're not having to, looking through, you know, reams and reams of documentation to find some little number that you know exists. Mm -hmm. You just can't remember which document it was. <laughs> uh in on what page and what table that you, you know you're looking for right two okay so i guess one last question a more of i guess the logistical side of things um and i think this kind of goes off of, of what we were just talking about but i mean another very important step in the operations phase is is 
documentation and making sure that you have yep. supporting documentation to train people um, to, to basically, you know, to, to be confident enough in the spacecraft to where they, they can operate it and they can debug issues um, as they occur. So I guess my, my question is, is, is what are some of the important things to keep in mind um, when you're working towards that phase and, and, and trying to think about, okay, how do I want to train yeah. people? Um, right. And, you know, is it mostly like you guys asking questions from uh, like the, the spacecraft engineers and, and the space or do the spacecraft engineers type up like little paragraphs and then send them to you? And then um, do you run through kind of uh, like drills or something to say, oh, okay, if I lose power, yeah. let me go to this section in this document and see if I can, you know, based on what's here, if I can debug what's going on. Right. That, good, great question. So best practices are, so I'll talk about the best practice, what you do in terms of best practices, which is you, for everything you need to do in your uh, operational phase, it should have a procedural documentation. So turning on your instrument, turning on the high gain antenna, deploying the uh, solar panels, all of that should have a procedural document. Some of those like, you know, uh, taking uh, pictures with a camera, you may use often, uh, deploying the solar array, may, you may only use it once, but they should be written um, so that you can step through, okay, step one, you know, make sure the explosive bolts are, are armed and ready to go. Step two, you know, in the command load, put in the command to, you know, trigger the explosive bolts. You know, step three, monitor, you know, power going to the battery system. Assuming all those things now, you know, the solar array has been deployed and you are power positive and ready for operations. You know, all that's very clearly in very clear language um, that does not require interpretation or uh, go look at this document or, you know, um, things like that. Mm -hmm. They should, everything should be very clear. And at the beginning of that, uh, that procedure, it should be made very clear to the person who's going to be reading it who should be doing this. This should be a spacecraft engineer with the following body of knowledge uh, background. If you are not that person, you are not meant to read and attempt to do this procedure. Um, and so it's, you know, it sounds highly restrictive, but the truth is, is what you're doing is you're making sure that, um, and you've tested this, you've tested this in the test bed, you've, you know, run uh, mission simulations, uh, operational readiness. So it's not, you know, you don't go to a procedure and go, wow, this is the first time I've seen this procedure. What do I do? You've seen this as the person who's going to be executing it many, 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 many times before. And in fact, you probably wrote it, you, you know, or may have uh, provided inputs into it. Uh, so it's nothing new to you. But what it provides is that when you're you the engineer who's responsible for running that procedure are replaced by someone with a similar background and knowledge set that when they sit down to read this you know they're going to be able to follow this and execute it and be successful as opposed to 
well, if they don't know this about the spacecraft or if they weren't sitting in Bob's talk on last Wednesday, that they don't know this piece of information um, that to make that procedure work correctly. So, you know, a lot of knowledge in, in teams tends to be this sort of the, the expert. Oh, you want that? Go talk to Bob. He knows about that or go. And it's passed on sort of word of mouth. Um, for spacecraft operations to occur because there is a, and especially for a mission that has a long lifetime, there is going to be a turnover in staff. Mm -hmm. And so your documentation needs to not just address the person who is maybe there for development and understands the system well going into that operational phase, but that person that gets hired on six months, a year, five years down the road, who maybe doesn't know that much about the mission, comes in with a certain body of knowledge and then sits down and goes, okay, where's my procedure book? Reads through that and now they're ready to go and understand how to do the job that they've been hired to do. And so that's, to me, that's, you've written solid documentation. If you can take someone with the right background, sit them down, have them read it and do and execute that procedure, um, repetitively if it's meant to do that or if it's a one-off can do it and do it successfully then you've written good documentation bad documentation is so you know select uh, software that you want to install on your system okay what software well whatever you want to install well yeah but what software is that well, you know whatever you want to use okay that's not useful to me magic so you know i've had yeah, it is, you know, uh, as a systems administrator, you, your job is to install systems and you want to install consistent systems. If your instructions say, select from the menu the software to install, you're not allowing your junior people to be successful because you haven't specifically said install. Here's the list of things to install to ensure when the system comes up, it has all the necessary software. Right. That's good documentation. Bad documentation is ambiguous you know, do that thing that you have to do to make the explosive bolts happen. Mm -hmm. What thing? I don't know what that thing is. You know, Just the so, thing. So that's a, the thing. <laughs> it, it, you know, that thing, flip that switchy thingy, you know, toggle that thing in memory yeah. or whatever that is. Yeah. The thing that's in that so, place at that one time that you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And, and it's an art, like everything, everything the, you know, the first time you do it, is you probably aren't very good at it unless you happen to be a, a gifted technical writer. Uh, and the more you do it, the better you get at it. Uh, and so it's just a matter of practicing it. And again, it's a communication thing. How do I effectively communicate? You know, uh, I've seen procedural documentation that says do this step. And then there's a paragraph that is like a justification of why you should do that step. And it's like that, that paragraph does not need to be in there. It just needs to be do this step. Mm -hmm. And the person doesn't need a justification why that's the correct step. The assumption is that's already been vetted ahead of time. And that's the correct step at that uh, uh, point in the procedure. Gotcha. So, you know, your documentation should, should do the thing it needs to do. So like on LRO, we started with the, um, the CDR slide stack, uh, and, and not like memorize this, but peruse this at your leisure mm -hmm. over the next week. And then if you have questions, we'll answer questions. Okay. 
here's the instrument, our camera system, CDR slide stack. Okay, now you're familiar with our instrument. Okay, here's the Science Operations Center uh, design review. This is how it's the Science Center is supposed to be put together and how it's functioning. Okay, now let's talk about what you, your job is in this framework of spacecraft instrument science operations center. Uh, and then from that, then we'd have specific, oh, you're the systems administrator, you're the programmer, you're the operations person. Each one had their own specific uh, pieces of uh, documentation that they would refer to about when we're developing software, what other standards? How do we name things? Where does that software reside? How do we check in and out code? Who does that? Is there, you know, all of that. If I'm the systems administrator and I want to make a change to the system, do I just go in there and type it, hit return and make it? Mm -hmm. No, I have to schedule it. I have to send out a notice to allow people to tell me that's a bad time to do that. I'm working, please hold off. Do, can you do it at a different time? Uh, and not only that, and let people know what that change is going to do. We're changing this to make it better, and this is how it's going to be better. Or we're changing this to prevent a possible security thing. But not just going, hey, I'm making a change on the server tonight, log off. Mm -hmm. Well, what are you changing? Um, because when you come in in the morning and something's broken, you want to go, okay, it wasn't what Bob was doing last night on the system. It's something else. Right. So it's all, it's all about the communication. You know, how do we communicate effectively to do the job that we want to do? System administrator has a job. He's effectively com communicating with their, his customers, the, the users of the system in a way that makes them feel involved and understand when things are changing. It's for the better. And when things break, they can go to the system administrator and say, I think you broke that last night because you said you were changing this tool upgrading it and it doesn't work today. Oh, okay, well, let's figure out what I did, you know, what happened. Uh, so all of that, so so by the time you really start uh, digging into your work, uh, at least uh, on the teams that I've built, you, you, you not, I didn't hire you just to do programming. All I, all I care is that you're programming, but I want you to understand your code is going to be used in operations or your code is going to be used here and how that fits in the entire framework of the project. Mm -hmm. So you understand your part in this bigger complex system. And, you know, and not, not to scare people, but to, you know, to, so that they can understand you are an integral part of this team. Right. If you're not successful, I'm not successful, our instruments are not successful, the mission isn't successful. So it's not just, oh, you messed up, you're fired, but it has you know, ramifications up and down uh, the project. Right. So instilling that sense of ownership uh, in the project to everyone at whatever, whether it's a student or staff or someone else, making sure that they understand what their job is and how it's important to the project yeah. and where it fits in that complex system. Yeah, I think that's one of, um you know, when you get involved in, in projects like this, that's one of the most, I would say the one of the most important, um, uh, I don't want to call it, hurt, it's not, hurdle is not, it's not the word I want, but it's one of the most important things to under, to, to really get, get your head around and get in the mindset of when, when you join a project is, is that you're not hired to just, you know, sit in this quarter and, and do this one thing and not think about how, uh, and not understand the rest of the system because it's, it's so important for asking questions. It, it really right. is. 
and growing. Mm -hmm. I mean, oh, growing, yeah. you know, if you're whatever your job is, the only way to grow is to ask questions right. and to ask questions means to be inquiring about the, the world that you live in, the project that you're living in. And if you're, you know, brought in and told, okay, you sit there, you just do your thing. Don't ask questions, you know, don't, you know, don't ever, you know, interact with the rest of the team, then you're sort of cut off and you never, you never grow as a professional. Uh, and I've seen people like that, you know, poor people who are just working for someone who's like, I want, this is the job I hired you, you only do this and nothing else. And it's like, okay, <laughs> that's not a lot of fun for yeah. them, I'm sure. It's great for the their boss, but it's not a lot of fun for that person. So my, yeah, my personal philosophy is, you know, if if you have free time and you have an interest, pick that book up, pick that manual up, ask questions. You know, the more you know, the better you are at your job, whether it's directly relatable or not, the better informed you are, the better you get at your job. Yeah. And figuring out Overall. when you're, when you're making assumptions about what you know and what you don't know, um, that's, right. that's another hard part of it too. I've, um, right. <laughs> that is something that will teach you a lot <laughs> very quickly. Right. Um, and you always make assumptions. It's just hopefully with more experience, you get better at knowing when you're going, as we say, off into the weeds and this is a total wag, or there's a lot of good evidence that this is probably a good guess at what the number or any, you know, whatever you're estimating and you're probably not far off by maybe not more than an order of magnitude if that you know, that's all experience mm -hmm. teaches you. You know, when you're young, you're just like, the answer is, <laughs> yay, I know the answer. And then later on you go, oh, there were error bars on that answer. Dang, okay, how do I, how do I calculate those? How do I figure out those error bars? Oh, okay. Yeah, so, you know, coming from geology, you know, a lot of that stuff, um, since I didn't come from the engineering side, you know, I kind of had to learn on my right. own, like, oh, answers have error bars error bars are important you know things like that so yeah i think my my background sort of having not come from engineering uh specifically has means i spent a lot more time worried about doing a really good job and reading a lot of different material to understand like how do you manage a, a diverse team? How do you write effective communication? How do you effectively communicate in a written, oral, uh, presentation sense? Mm -hmm. um, all of these things um, so that over my career, I think I've learned um, lessons that sometimes you don't learn. Um, either you'll learn in school early on or you never learn because you're not exposed to it. And um, so it's like, oh, those are good things that, you know, like effective communication. Mm -hmm. How do you effectively brainstorm? You know, it's like I read all kinds of articles on like, how do you effectively get a team to be creative, get mm -hmm. people to step out of their shell and, you know, throw caution to the wind and throw ideas out. Um, and, and put themselves out there to iterate to something that is better than, you know, you just sitting in the room going, okay, my design's the best. I know better than anybody else. Okay, we're done. Mm -hmm. uh, and going, okay, team, here's the design. Hit it. <laughs> Build it. Um, it. And I think it's way more funner 
much a lot more fun when interacting with people because you know my mind works a certain way your mind works a certain way and when we're tackling a problem your experience and the way your mind works you're going to spit out ideas that are different than mine and you know my eyes are going to go like wow i would have never thought of that because i'm not wired that way so the more people you can uh, bring into that creative process uh, and systems engineering is very much a creative process i think uh, despite it being, you know, very formal and very structured, right. it is nonetheless a creative process. So, so I like that interaction, that creativity of different backgrounds and mindsets and approaches to things. Right. Kind of, uh, it's it's interesting that you you bring up articles and, and other things you you've read too. Do you have any? Um, I guess do you have any like books or or um, like journals that other people can follow that you can recall off the top of your head? Yeah, well, I, I did a lot of reading Harvard Business Review mm. on like when I was, uh, you know, when I was going to be in charge of a large team, like, how do I manage a team? Right. You know, and most of the people I managed for LRO were people, I had done the jobs that they were going to do at some point in my career. So it was less about you know managing someone who I don't know what they're doing more so than like how do I effectively get all these different backgrounds to work uh, as a team and and do it well. Um, so it, and um, there were a couple of books uh, about programming, programming teams. Um, There's couple of books and off the top of my head I don't remember the authors but I can send you those references um, one specifically a couple of guys who sort of took systems administration and sort of looked at it from this systems engineering standpoint and how do you you know in the early days of systems administration it tended to be the person who liked playing with computers and just happened to know things and make things work and and there wasn't really structure, design, you know, metrics, all of this stuff. Uh, and so when I got into it, um, I read a lot of different materials, both directed specifically at systems administration and then other materials that sort of talked about systems and how do you understand a system? Well, you have to measure things, metrics about a system. Well, what do you measure? Well, it depends on what you're interested in, performance, stability, uh, utilization of inputs, you know, generation of outputs, all of those things. And so reading all of those, distilling them through, you know, jumbling them all up together and distilling them into like, oh, so if I want to build a stable system, I have to have the right metrics. And depending on the system, those aren't always the same. And so how do I build those? And how do I know which ones those are? And, and learning that um, the critical thinking process of not just reading something that somebody wrote and saying, oh, I'm going to implement that, but like, that's a great solution for their problem. And about 50% of that would work really great in, in my situation mm -hmm. and understanding and seeing that and, and being able to excise that 50% and bring it over to your project. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, I can provide those, uh, at least the books in, in some of those uh, journal articles that I thought were um, instrumental in me sort of 
putting the final um, finishing touches to my systems engineering training mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, okay, I think I have a tool set that allows me to build a team, manage a team, um, and, and let that elicit the optimal response from that team to be extremely successful in what they're doing. Uh, and certainly I think I've proven that with LRO, kind of doing that with March 2020 right now, uh, and hopefully with Psyche uh, as well, you know, getting that team to not just do their job, but to do the best job mm -hmm. and be ready for all uh, manner of instances and not panic and just be cool, calm, and collected and go, okay, how do, we have a problem, identify the cause, solve the problem, you know, move back into normal operations. Yeah, that would, be, that would be great. Yeah, don't panic. That's the first <laughs> step. Yeah, I'm not, um, I've started the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I've not finished it, but it, it's, it's great it, so far. Yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, there's a lot, reading a lot of sci-fi actually, I think, prepares you for doing uh, spacecraft operations huh. in some weird, bizarre way. Because there's, there's so much of it, and sometimes it's so unlike anything you would ever really experience in real life. And so you get used to being thrown at these, thrown into these situations in the book that are so unlike anything. And then how do you grasp it? How do you wrap your head around it, make sense of it, start to interact in that world? Uh, and I'm an avid science fiction reader. And so a lot of times people like talk about things and it's like, oh yeah, that was, there's books, book series on that. And you know, there's this one. And so you give me any situation. I'm like, oh yeah, there were books on sci-fi about that or fantasy about that. You know, uh, I've, you know, already lived those in books already. Uh, so, so it's kind of funny, like, you know, that's fiction, but reading that fiction, you know, sort of primes your mind for unusual, different situations um, and not being scared of them or panicking or, you know, but like, oh, this is interesting. I want to know more about this situation uh, and stepping forward and, you know, diving in wholeheartedly. Uh, yeah. Like I tell people, my problem is I always say yes when people go, hey, do you want to do this? I don't know anything about that. You bet. Yes, I do. <laughs> I'll, I'll volunteer because that's the way you learn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. like the the perfect place to be is what somewhere between chaos and order and in that kind of mm -hmm. that gray area there. Yep. Yeah. Very much so. Perfect. Um, I so my last my last question. Um, do, okay. you have, do you have time for one more? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've got time. Okay. Um, and this is, this is, um, like one of my favorite questions that I, I like to ask everyone, but what is, what is a favorite story from your experience in operations land, uh, that you would like to share? My favorite story. <laughs> well, the one that immediately comes to mind, given that we're just talking about not panicking. <laughs> so, uh, we were about a week and a half out from our first PDS data delivery for LRO. And we uh, can't remember, but it was in the hundreds of uh, uh, gigabytes, terabytes, tens of terabytes of data for that first release. Uh, a fair bit of data, a big 
lot of data, a lot of data, a lot of file, not only in size, like in volume, mm. but also the number of files because the, the wide angle camera takes these strips that we break up into uh, because of uh, camera parameters into chunks on the daylight side. And then the narrow angle, but they're um, in size, they are small in size, number of bits, but, uh, and there are a few of them, um, or more of them than they are with the narrow angle camera, but those files are huge in size because they have so many pixels. So between the three cameras, the left and the right, and the wide angle camera, lots of, in number, lots of files, and in total volume, lots of data. Anyways, we're a week and a half out from our first PDS release, and the file system storage that all this data is on goes south. And I don't mean like, oh, something weird is happening. It's like, where's the data? Where's that directory? What? Oh my God, the data's all gone. What happened to the data? Oh. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, calling up the, 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 at the time we, we had the high performance group was doing our storage for us here at ASU and calling them up and going, okay, we just lost the, the, the NFS mount, what's happening, you know, and they're like, well, we're not sure, but it looks like the system just crashed. We're going over and we're going to try to figure out what's going on, see if we can bring it back up. So a couple hours later, uh, they call up and they said, okay, good news. System crashed, you know, we reset everything. We're booting up the system. Looks like it's coming up fine. And then you hear this pause and then some mumbling in the background, and then a heavy sigh. Oh, very and good signs. Like, okay, yeah, not, not good signs. And then it's like, okay, what's going on? Okay, so there's a small problem, and we're like, okay, well, what's going on? Well, so the file system has decided to FSCK. And the FSCK <laughs> is, is uh, you're familiar with. So it's a file system check that file systems sometimes do. Normally, you know, on 100 megabyte or a one terabyte disk, that's not a problem. Mm -hmm. This was a hundred terabytes. Actually, this was 500 terabytes uh, in size. And so it's like, it's going to take a while. And we're like, oh my God, we, 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 what? No, you know, and just, just like disbelief that this is happening a week and a half out. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it turns out it took way longer than just a little while. Um, I think it wound up taking close to like five days for the FSCK oh to, to finish because it was actually because it crashed in the middle of when we were doing things, it was finding things, fixing it, you know, so it, it was not just simply scan the disk. Okay. Everything's good. Let's go. It was doing some work, but it, it took a long time. And so after 24 hours, we're like, okay, you know, and we still didn't know whether the file system was going to come back. This was just, we're waiting to see if we lost everything or, you know, oh do we have some things, but not everything. And so we're like, but we're okay. Now we're, you know, less than a week and a half. We're a week away from, from um, releasing data. And so, so we had a meeting with the the folks, everybody involved and we're like, okay, what are our options here? What we have to meet, we cannot fail to meet 
that deadline. I mean, um, even if it's by an hour or, you know, you know, or a day, we can't, we can't not meet that uh, deadline. And so we brainstormed for a little while and eventually we said, well, we have all the data, all the raw data and everything we need on, on external disks. Um, if we copy that over to the HPC compute cluster, we could process, we have enough time to process all that data. But we don't have enough time to copy all that data that we, if we generated on the high, high performance computing, we don't have enough time to actually physically copy it. So we're gonna have to leave it in this, in, you know, we had a couple of file systems available to write it. And then, and then we somehow have to cobble all that together and make it look like it's all one file system um, so that when we're ready to release the data, you know, we can pull back the curtains and voila, here's all the data. And so, you know, it's like this little, everybody's sort of holding their heads in their hands going, okay, this, this couldn't possibly work, but it's better than just sitting here watching the little FSCK thing go round and round. Yeah. And, you know, and if it crashes or dies or, and in fact, uh, I think it, it did not finish. Uh, it crashed a couple of times and we had to restart everything. And so it was just, a, the whole file system was having problems. Anyways, <laughs> so we said, okay, so we you know, we marshaled everyone who needed to be involved to, okay, you guys are going to start copying and you're going to, uh, you're going to install the software, work with HPC folks to get all our software installed in the right places so we can do it for data processing. And how are we going to queue all this, you know, and so we got it all set up and we sent it off into the cluster um, and we processed everything that we needed to do it and we got it done like in four days. You know, like took us a day to set it up and like four days later, it's all done. Nice. And we're now three, four days away from uh, our release. And so now it's like, okay, so now we have all this data. Now what do we do with it? You know, like, uh, okay. <laughs> so, so that's, you know, and so like at this point, I just kind of been like, you know, okay, you're, uh, and now was my turn to be in the hot seat. And so it was like, okay, Ernest, you're the Unix command line guru. How do we make all this stuff look like it's one big file system? Uh, okay, you know, crack your knuckles, push everything away from the keyboard and start typing. And so basically through process of making a bunch of links in the file system, made it look like it was the PDS release um, as it was going to appear had we done it normally. Um, you know, and I think I actually broke a sweat on that one. Like I was like, <laughs> uh, just, you know, trying to think, okay, I got to do this and, uh, and got it all to work. So I think with a day or two to spare, we got it all set, ready to go nice. and then unveiled it. Everybody took a deep breath, you know, and crashed for, for a day or two. <laughs> and then came the hard part of, okay, the file system is back up. We've process, we've reprocessed all this data. Do we use that data? And because that data is what's published, we couldn't just say, oh, let's point at the data that we had on disk. So we had to sort of throw away all the stuff that we had on disk and then now start moving all the data that we had in the high performance cluster back over to the 
the actual project file system while it's still being published to the, the general public. So for the LRO mission, uh, we have a server here at, at ASU that's the LROC data node. So it's supposed to be available 24 seven for people to be able to download LROC data. So we couldn't just turn it off and do the copy. So it had to all be live. So under the hood, we're doing these copies, you know, doing checks, you know, generating checksum. So when we do the copy, we make sure we copied everything. And so I think that took us something like three or four weeks uh, total to do all of the copying under the covers, verify that the data that we copied over was correct, put it all in the right place, and then put it in the right form and then do sort of this, look, look, a zebra, <laughs> and then switched out with the other file system. And then, you know, we were, okay, all the data is live on our servers. We're back to normal operations. Uh, so that was almost a month's worth of a very intense combined effort to do that wow. uh, from the from a lot of people on the on the LROC team to make it happen. And I mean, it was touch and go. We weren't sure it was going to work. There were a lot of points where it was just like, I'm just going to get up and walk out because there's no no way this is going to work. We're just dead in the water here. But but we pulled it off and. No, you know, we didn't have any hiccups uh, again until um, probably a year later with that same file system. Eventually, we migrated off that hardware uh, system. But, but yeah, that was uh, not a good way to start off your PDS uh, delivery with a major malfunction like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but, again, don't panic. What are your options? Can you do it? Okay, you know, and it would have been very easy for, for you know, to kind of get stuck on talking about it too much or, okay, we've made the decision, now what? Uh, you know, and it's that kind of thing where making the decision is the easy part. Now you have to tell people what to do because, mm -hmm. you know, most often people are like just standing there going, okay, what do I do? And somebody has to go, you do this, you do this, you do this, and then make sure they're doing that. So, you know, all of that had to happen the way it needed to go to make sure that we met that, that deadline. So that's, that's my favorite story because it really required a lot of people to do all the things that they were hired to do and do it well to make, to make the, the success of the first PDS release work. So nice. <laughs> so that's that's my story. <laughs> and the names uh, have not been mentioned, so nobody you know gets in trouble. <laughs> of course, yeah, would uh, would not would not want my podcast to do that. <laughs> no, no, yeah, no. It was it was a very good lesson learned too. There were a lot of good lessons in there. Yeah, I think um, uh, uh, one of the. One of the most useful things I think we took away just from really any kind of mission ops prep or, or just, or, you know, the brief amount of time that Phoenix was in the operations phase was like working under that kind of pressure where you have to, um, mm -hmm. you have to make decisions very quickly and you have to have a level head and, and, you know, try to remain yeah. calm and, and think, okay, so, you know, just take a deep breath. This is what I know. This is what I don't know. And this is, this is how I go from here. Um, so right. yeah, I mean, that sounds 
that sounds like a headache, but that definitely sounds like a situation that, you know, um, you don't want to live it every day, oh, yeah, but no. <laughs> yeah, there's, there, there's something about like, um, it's like, I, I, I think, um, I, the analogy to me is, um, like being an Olympic class athlete, you're in that zone where everything else just melts away and you are doing the thing you've trained for. Right. And in that moment, you nail it. Mm -hmm. And that's the, the feeling. I think it's like, you couldn't have envisioned this. You couldn't have made this up, but here it is. And you know, you're like you said, you just have to focus. Don't panic. What do I know? What don't I know? You know, I have to make a choice. Mm -hmm. This is the best choice given the information I have and, and you go and you just do it. Uh, and, and that feeling at the end when it's all over, whoosh, <laughs> wow, I can't believe we just did that. Yeah. Okay. Never again. Okay. At least not for another week, please. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. And then something else happens. It's like, um, but. what are those, uh, like the jokes you make about your kitchen floor. It's like, I just cleaned up all of this. Like, can we just, can no one uh, yeah. just walk here, please, <laughs> for, for a little right. while? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. It, and that, again, it's, you know, the thing that I think really, it, certainly that's what draws me to systems engineering and operations and is the fact that there is no typical day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're talking about, you know, expensive pieces of hardware and missions that every everybody in public and at NASA is looking at you mm -hmm. and you're like, oh my God, I can't mess this up. Uh, and, and there's something exhilarating in that feeling of like, okay, you know, I know what I know. I know what my capabilities are. And the minute I get to that edge of, okay, I, I don't know this, somebody else has to take over from here, but I can take us to this point and doing that, I think is the thing that really uh, makes me get out of bed every day, come to work and you know, with a big smile on my head and go, they pay me to do this? I would do it for free, <laughs> but don't tell anybody. But don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody what? I mean, I didn't. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah so yeah that's it awesome well thank you all of all of this has been um that 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 was my last question <laughs> um okay all of all of all of this has been really awesome advice that i, I think a lot of people are, are really going to um appreciate uh, in terms of getting a, a better understanding of, of the mission ops uh Mm -hmm. preparing for the mission ops phase and also conducting it as well. So um, I really yeah. appreciate it. Thank Good. you. My pleasure. That's all for this week's episode of the Art of Space Engineering. Thank you so much for tuning in and supporting this podcast. And remember, when it comes to dealing with issues on the ground or in orbit, don't panic. Though I know that's easier said than done. There is one quick thing that I did want to add to this episode in case there are any CubeSat teams out there listening to this. So once we had finalized all of our flight software and we were just working on preparing our operations guides for Phoenix, we did something that we called a hallway test. Now basically what that means is that we pulled someone from the hallway into the lab, gave them our operator documentation, and then had them go through various operations procedures. Except, I mean, so the people we had do this were people that we knew and trusted. We didn't actually just pull some poor random bystander into the hallway and go, hey, come type a bunch of commands into a terminal and operate a CubeSat. It'll be super fun. Oh, and by the way, my name's Sarah. No, we, we, we didn't do that. 
But these tests are important to do because the people who write the documentation on how everything works aren't always the people operating the spacecraft. You know, I think we've all experienced this. When you're writing something, you can't always see when you miss critical details. So we found this to be a really great way to just verify that we didn't miss anything and that our documentation was as thorough as it needed to be. So if you're preparing for the operations phase yourself, then I hope that proves useful to you. And as always, if you want to know more about this or anything else that we did, please feel free to shoot me an email. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you aren't already, don't forget to follow The Art of Space Engineering on your favorite podcast platform. Throw us a like on Facebook for more updates and share these episodes with your fellow space nerds. Here's looking forward to future adventures and the lessons learned from them. Cheers, Sarah.